We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and as you do, I just want to remind you of just a couple of things real quick. Uh, Ladies, uh, as we said downstairs at breakfast this morning, today is the last day to sign up for women's retreat in March and to pay for women's retreat. Uh, So please uh, see Ashley or Brittany after the service, and they'd love to get you connected and hooked up with that. Um, And then also, uh, as Andrew mentioned earlier, we've got community groups starting this evening. Uh, It would really help us out if if you sign up uh, for the group you're wanting to attend. That way, uh, Pastor Cameron and I, as group leaders, we can send out a text with uh, address and any information and just know who's coming uh, so that we can let the host homes know and such as well. So that'd be a huge help to us if y'all would sign up up there uh, at the back of the sanctuary and uh, on your way out on this table in the hallway here as well. And then one final quick announcement as you're turning to Luke chapter 4. In a couple of weeks, we've got a couple new Sunday school classes starting, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, We've got a class that's called uh, What Christ Thinks of the Church, where we're going to be looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3 and what Jesus has to say to local churches like ours. Uh, and so that's, that class is going to meet upstairs on the third floor, uh, and that's starting in a couple weeks. And then we've got a class starting downstairs in the fellowship hall called The Reason for God. Uh, and this is a, a different kind of class than we've offered in the past. It's a class that uh, deals with some of the major objections to Christianity. And so during that class, uh, you're going to see Tim Keller, who was a pastor for many years uh, and a trainer of pastors, uh, walk through some conversations uh, with skeptics. Uh, about the Bible and about Christianity, asking hard questions and having difficult conversations about the faith. And so it's going to be an example of how to do that, and then we're going to discuss throughout those weeks what that looks like, how we build friendships with those who don't believe, those who have questions, and how we have conversations about those things in an honest, open way. And so uh, I hope that you're excited about those two opportunities. If you're not in a Sunday school class right now, this is a wonderful time for you to jump in, and I would highly encourage you to do do that. Sunday school provides an environment for learning and discipleship and training in the Christian faith that, that honestly, we just don't have time to, to unpack everything in a Sunday sermon or a Wednesday night sermon, and so it's an additional thing that, that supports the things we're learning as a church and really fosters greater discipleship and walks with the Lord. So I hope you'll jump in on those opportunities. But as we turn to Luke chapter 4 today, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. And today, uh, we have something really interesting. Uh, there is, uh, this is one of Jesus' first sermons. We're going to look at one of his first messages. And in this first sermon, two things happen. Uh, one is that people are utterly amazed at what he has to say. And the second is that they want to kill him. And they even try to. And those things seem contradictory, don't they? And they should, because you, and you'll see how it plays out. But, but first, they're amazed at what he's saying, and then by the end of it, they're wanting to throw him off of a cliff. 
And I'm thankful that uh, I've not quite had that experience as a preacher, um, and I think I'll try and avoid getting thrown off a cliff like Jesus does. Um, but it's a really interesting passage, so I hope you're excited about looking at what Luke has to say to us this morning in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read it for us and pray real quick, and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke writes, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they had heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Father God, we need your help to understand your word, and so we come to you asking for your wisdom asking for your spirit's guidance, and asking that you would move and work in our hearts today as we look at the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said and taught. God, I pray that you would use your words this morning to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. God, that we would become more like him, that we would rely on him and all that he's accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. God, would you speak to hearts this morning? Would you set captives free? Would you, would you preach good news to the poor? And would you give sight to the blind? God, that we might enjoy your favor and walk with your son, humbly trusting in him alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so in interesting story, right? Jesus starts preaching, and everybody's amazed at first, and then all of a sudden by the end, they want to kill him. And so we're going to dive in, and we're going to look at four different questions this morning. And the first one I want to ask is, what is your routine? So look with me at verses 14 through 16 and what Luke writes here. He says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, 
And a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What Luke's getting at here is that Jesus has been teaching in the surrounding areas, and he's, he's developed a reputation. Jesus has begun to develop a rep as, as an amazing and gifted teacher, exorcist, healer, and miracle worker, and the people are hearing about it because he's full of God's spirit, doing God's works, and preaching God's message. And so everyone is hearing about what he's been doing as he goes about starting his ministry, and they're all glorifying him, which means they're praising him. They're excited about what Jesus is doing and what Jesus has to say. And they're so excited that when Jesus, it says in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. It was a very Jewish town filled with, with Israel, with, with, with Jewish people. And so when Jesus goes to his hometown, um, it, it, it's kind of like whenever, whenever Brittany and I travel back home, uh, you know, a, a lot of our relatives know that I'm a pastor, and so oftentimes they'll ask me to pray. Uh, and, and sometimes they'll ask me to pray whenever it was either a, even a gathering where no one prayed before, you know, which is, which is a little awkward for me because I feel like they f- feel like I've got to pray or something, you know. It, it, it's kind of like this idea where Jesus has this reputation, and then so he goes back to his hometown, and they've heard about the things that he's been doing, and they're really excited about it, and so they ask him to do the reading and the teaching for the day uh, at the local gathering. And so in the ancient world, in the New Testament times, what they would do is they would gather at synagogues. The Jewish people would get together weekly for worship, for prayer, to read God's word and to hear from it together. And they would get together. There would be several different readings. There would be a reading from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And then there would usually be a reading from the prophets as well. And so Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah and does the reading. He's been asked to do the reading and teaching for the day. Uh, because this is his hometown. They've heard about all that he's been doing. And I want you to notice something here that Luke points out that, that is really instructive for us. Did you see that, that word custom? It said, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Custom is, is a habitual practice. It's, it's the usual way of acting in given circumstances. That's how it's defined. In other words, it's a routine and so this, this is kind of the rhythm of daily or weekly life for Jesus. His rhythm, his routine, his custom is to go to the synagogue, is to gather with God's people, is to hear God's word read and taught, and to worship together, to pray together. And, and not just weekly, sometimes it might have been multiple times in a week. So here's, here's the question, what, what's your routine look like? What's, what's your custom What's normal for you? Maybe when you think about routines, you, you think about how you know, your routine kind of starts out, off with a quick drive through Starbucks every morning. And, and, and you just can't make it through your day without a cup of coffee. And so you've got to go through the drive through at Starbucks. When, when I worked at AT&T uh, a couple of years ago, I, I saw th- this one van would pull through the drive through at Starbucks every morning next to our store. And, and this mom had like six or seven kids in, in her van every morning, every morning, Monday through Friday, maybe even weekends. I wasn't there some of those times, but, but she would show up every day with this van load of kids. 
and she would order a drink and something to eat for everybody in the car. That's an expensive routine. You know, I, I was like looking at, at what I could make from selling a cell phone, and I was like, that's not going to buy me a cup of coffee, let alone if I had a van load of kids that I was getting coffee for every morning. I mean, that's an expensive routine, right? Maybe routines for you don't involve Starbucks. Maybe for you, your routine is a nine-to-five. You get up, and you have that daily grind. You go to work, and you work hard, and then you come home exhausted, Maybe for you it's not just a 9 to 5, maybe it's a 9 to 5 and then a 6 to 10 just to make ends meet. And so by the end of the day, you're, you're done. Maybe for you a routine looks like getting up three kids in the morning and, and trying to get them breakfast and ready for school and then getting them there on time and then after school you've got extracurricular activities to get three kids to and then you're just trying to survive. By the time you get home and you finally get them into bed, you're ready to collapse. That's what your routine looks like. Or maybe for you, you're going through a season of life right now where there's not a whole, whole lot going on in your routine. Where maybe, maybe you're recently retired, maybe, maybe you, you just got out of a relationship, maybe you just got out of a different job opportunity and you're searching for a different career path, and, and your routine doesn't involve a whole lot right now, and you're, and you're not sure what it should involve. You see, routines are, are, are the normal, mundane aspects of life. They're the weekly, daily rhythms that we go through. And routines, they, they're often not life-giving, purposeful, and joy-filled because, because oftentimes they're, they're just busy. They're busy, they're fast, they're slow, they're hard. They're not filled with much, they're filled with a lot. And... And I think the reason sometimes our routines are, are so mundane, so, so joyless, so purposeless, is because we've, we've forgotten a key aspect of routine. That, that God actually wants to be up to something in the midst of our routines, of our customs. You see, what if, what if we didn't just learn from Jesus' words this morning, but we also learned from his actions? From, his, from, from what he did, from the way he lived his life? What if, what if things like, like getting together with other believers on Sunday mornings was not, was not the rare thing that we did, but the regular thing that we did? What if, what if church attendance was a priority for us like it was for Jesus? I mean, if getting together with other believers to hear God's word taught and to pray together and to worship together was a priority for the Son of God then it's got to be for us, right? If Jesus thought, this is so important that I need to be doing this as a regular part of my rhythm, the regular routine, my custom, then it's got to be vital for us. You see, because the thing about spiritual disciplines, whether it's gathering with other believers to pray and hear God's word, or it's reading your Bible in the morning or evening or at lunch on your break, or, or praying to God or, or singing his praises, whatever it looks like. The thing about spiritual disciplines is they disrupt our normal routines and they infuse them with God-given purpose and meaning. Because all of a sudden, it's not just about getting your coffee for the morning. It's about what God's going to do in that day. 
It's not just about getting the kids where they need to go. It's about discipling your kids on a daily, weekly basis and, and getting them to the places they need to be so that God can work in their hearts and lives. All of a sudden, our routines aren't just about us anymore. They're about God and what he's doing in our lives. You see, so I think there's a lot we can learn, even from just this one verse that this was Jesus' custom, was to get together with God's people, to hear his word preached, and to pray with God's people. We need those kinds of rhythms in our life. The second question I want you to ask is, is who is the gospel for? Look with me at verses 17 through 22. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." See, here's what we need to understand about the the passage that Jesus just read. There's there's a number of things that we could dive into, but just just a couple of things real quick. Uh, That that proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, this for the Jewish people would have reminded them of the jubilee that they read about in Leviticus 25. And we don't have time to read Leviticus 25 and dive into that very much, but, but basically what would happen in this year of jubilee, it was the 50th year. Every 50 years, there was this one year where where God's favor and grace were shown and, and, and the captives were set free. And, and those who had lost their land because maybe they, they, they were poor and they had to sell it, they, they got their land back. All of a sudden there was good news for the poor. There, was, there were captives who, who had sold themselves as servants being set free once again. All of a sudden that which had gone wrong was being restored. God's favor was being shown in this year of jubilee. And so they would have thought about this. And so when Jesus rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down, and all the eyes of the synagogue are fixed on him, they're they're waiting to see what he's about to say. They're anticipating something amazing here because he just selected one of their favorite passages in the Bible. You know how you've you've got like a life verse or something, like one of your favorites, like you read that verse all the time when when things are hard and difficult, and, and it's what gets you through this was, kind of, this was one of those passages for the Jewish people. This was proclaiming that when God's Messiah came, when the Savior came, when the Christ came, that the captives were going to be set free, that good news was coming to the poor, that those who were oppressed were going to find freedom from oppression, that those who couldn't see would see once again. This was going to be a time of God's favor on his people. See, it was one of their favorite passages because they were God's people. In Genesis 12, we, we read about God's covenant made with Abraham and, and how God was going to bless Abraham and bless his descendants. And in Genesis 15, we read about how his descendants were going to be more numerous than the stars or, or than the sand on the beach. And so there were these great promises made about becoming a great people and, ha- and having this land flowing with milk and honey and, and, and having all the things that you could possibly need. That they would, they would be rich, that they would be healthy, that they would be prosperous. There were these grand promises made to God's people. And 
And what we have to notice about what Jesus reads here is he's very selective about the verses he reads. In fact, he doesn't, he, he doesn't even have verse numbers. So like when Jesus opened the scroll, it was a bunch of capital Hebrew letters with no spaces, no punctuation marks, no nothing. And so when it says that Jesus finds the place where it was written, he knows his Bible really well. He knows exactly where this passage is at, and he scrolls down to it, and he finds it, and he reads a very intentional set of verses, and then leaves part out intentionally as well. Because what we read in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which is what he's quoting here, along with potentially a verse from chapter 58 in Isaiah, is that 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 end of that verse there, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus leaves something out. See, the verse goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You see, Jesus comes proclaiming the day and the year of God's favor, but he doesn't proclaim yet God's judgment. And you see, the the Israelites, the Jewish people, they, they would have celebrated that God's favor was coming to them, and then they would have expected also with that, with the Messiah to bring God's judgment on their enemies, on their oppressors, on on those who had rebelled against God, who didn't know God. They expected God's judgment to come for them. And Jesus leaves this part out. I think probably if you were there in the synagogue that day, you would be thinking, man, I wonder why he left that part out. I wonder why he didn't finish that section there. I'm really excited to hear what he's got to say about God's favor and, and the spirit of the Lord being, being upon me and, 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 then, and then God delivering the captives, setting the oppressed free and sight to the blind. I'm really excited about all those things. I wonder why he left that little phrase out about God's vengeance, God's judgment. And we're going to see here in just a minute why he does that. You see, the, the Jewish people loved these verses because they believed the Messiah would come and overthrow political oppressors. He would establish, once again, a, a Jewish nation. He would establish health and prosperity, deliverance. You see, the people were under the oppression of Rome at the time. You see, God's people, they, they were promised all this land in the covenant to Abraham. They were promised all this blessing. And then throughout the story, it's like they, they just keep getting overthrown by their other kingdoms. Throughout the Old Testament, like, their rule and reign, it lasts for a pretty short time, and then all these other enemies overthrow them and rule them. And so they're waiting for this day when the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to deliver them, and Israel's going to be a nation again. See, they had their hopes set on a very political Messiah, one who would deliver them from Rome, from their enemies. And the thing is, Jesus isn't going to, he, he's not coming about it that way. He, he's about to really upset them here in a couple of verses. And, and the reason they're going to be upset is because Jesus is not coming to establish a political nation. Instead, he's going to establish his redemptive rule in the hearts of men and women. In the hearts of those who will trust in him who will humbly say, yeah, I'm not just poor like in terms of my money, but I'm poor spiritually and I I need God. 
I'm, I'm not just captive right now in, in servitude, but, but I'm captive by my sin's effect on my life. I'm not just oppressed physically, but spiritually as well. I'm not just blind physically, but spiritually as well. I need God to open my eyes. I need God to show up. See, Jesus is coming to do a work in the hearts of men and women who come to him with humble, confident faith like that. And he's about to tell the Jewish people that oftentimes it's the Gentiles, not them. This is going to really stir some feathers. It's going to really irritate some people. But here's just a a quick aside that that I think we need to talk about in our culture, especially in an election year. Our hope is not in a Christian nation. It's not. It's in the king who rules over all the kingdoms of the world and that is not threatened by what happens on earth. You see, here's just a a few quick things. And I'm going to ruffle some feathers, so I I hope that's okay with you. So I'm going to do it anyway, but... (laughs) Well, I mean, Jesus did it, so, you know, I have precedent. America was never a Christian nation. That's not how we started. Yes, there were Christians amongst the founding fathers of our country. There, there were Christian ideas that were intimately intertwined with, as they were writing the Constitution, as they were getting things together, as they were starting this new country where freedom was going to reign. There were definitely Christian ideas that drove some of those things, But America did not start as a Christian nation. There were many, in fact, who, amongst the founding fathers, we probably will not be worshiping with for eternity. America did not begin as a Christian nation. In fact, it began as a place where there would be freedom of religion, freedom to worship according to conscience, not according to the ruler, the political ruler of the day. That's That's what's so beautiful about this, is freedom to worship freedom. You see, so America didn't start as a Christian nation. It started as, as a land of the free. And yeah, there were some Christian ideas that drove a lot of those things. But, but, but if we think that our hope is in reclaiming Christian America, then we're going to miss out, friends, because there never was a Christian America. Jesus didn't come to set up the kingdom of America. He came to set up the kingdom of, of God which will transcend and last beyond, well beyond, this country does. We don't like to think about that because we happen to live here right now. You know, Rome was, was one, of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest kingdoms the world has ever seen. And, and, and their history was much, much longer than, than ours is so far. And yet Rome was overthrown. They still have roads that are still in place that you can still walk on and and drive on. I mean, like, they had some things figured out, and still their kingdom was overthrown. We think about Constantine, and and he tried this idea of a Christian nation, and, and frankly, it didn't work. It didn't last. You see, because our hope is not in a Christian nation, friends. It's not in getting someone into the White House who's going to fix things. It's not in getting someone into the right local offices who's, who's going to fix things. 
It's in the king who continues to work despite when things are broken, despite when things are not working out as they should be, despite when justice is not done, despite when things don't happen as they should. You see, our hope is in Jesus the Messiah who who really does come to set captives free and who really does give sight to the blind and, and who really does give freedom to the oppressed and preaches good news to the poor. So our, our, our hope in 2020 cannot be in somehow reclaiming a Christian nation because it will fail you. And Jesus did not come to do this. Now, am I saying we shouldn't engage culture politically? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. We should engage our culture, and we should engage in the political arenas as believers, as those who humbly and confidently trust in King Jesus and his kingdom. We should engage in those environments, have conversations. We should vote. We should engage in those arenas, but not because we're trying to reclaim a kingdom, but because we're serving a king. That's why we do it. That's why we jump in. That's why we get involved. So there's my spiel. But Jesus is going to similarly disappoint the Jewish people because this is not what he's about to do. It says, "And, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus just claimed to be the Messiah. So hometown boy is preaching in his hometown church, and he gets up and he says, yeah, this word from Isaiah about the coming Messiah, that's me. Which, you know, you would think would make them kind of think, man, is he crazy? Like, that's Joseph's son. You know what that means? That, that means, like, like, they knew him. Whenever I go back to, to Macon, Missouri, to my, grand, my grandparents' church, it, it's the church I kind of grew up in. I, I didn't really grow up in church, but I went to church with them occasionally when I would spend a weekend with them. And, and there's still older ladies there that I'll, I'll see, and, and, and most of the time I don't recognize, but I don't tell them. Um, but they will recognize me, and I'll say, oh, Grant, I used to have you in Sunday school. And more embarrassingly, they'll say, oh, great, I remember changing your diapers in the nursery. That's this kind of idea. When they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They changed his diapers. They knew him. They saw him grow up. And this man shows up, and when he gets this opportunity to teach in the synagogue in the weekly gathering, he says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. You would think this is what would upset them. But it's not. In fact, we read, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. You see, they're very happy that the Messiah has come. They're very happy that God's year of freedom and favor has come, that they are going to see good news preached to the poor, that the captives are going to be set free. They're excited about these things. They're marveling at what Jesus has done, what they've heard about elsewhere, and then that hopefully they're going to see it. You see, one, one more word about these words that Jesus reads from Isaiah. is that The question, who is the gospel for? It's for both sinners and sufferers. hope you caught that. It's, it's for both those who have physically been oppressed and poor 
Jesus, throughout his ministry, you see him going to these types of people, to the hurting and broken, bringing healing and restoration, and, and giving actual sight to those who are actually blind. And you also see this, this kind of spiritual side of things, where, where those who can't see spiritually, he opens their eyes. Where, where those who are oppressed or, or captive by, by their sin or the sins of others, he, he sets them free. You see, the gospel is for sinners and sufferers, which is really good news for you and I. Because it means that there's forgiveness offered no matter what you've done, that this Messiah has come for you. That's what's so radical about him saying that he, he came for the Gentiles as well. It's because they were, man, they were viewed extremely negatively. <laughs> they were idolaters. They were murderers. They were thieves. And Jesus says, the gospel is for you. It's also for sufferers. It's for those who have suffered at the hands of those who have oppressed them, whether it be in an abusive environment or relationship, whether it be uh, suffering in, in a world in which no matter how hard you work, sometimes the bills just don't get met. You see, Jesus came to meet very practical needs, and he does throughout his ministry, and then he came to transform people's hearts in a very spiritual way. The gospel is for sinners and sufferers. It's for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed, both spiritually and physically. And so, like, those are all good things, right? They're, they're pretty excited about this. But the question you have to ask now is, who are you really okay with God blessing? Who are you okay with him saving? You see, the Jews wanted God's blessing for themselves, but God's judgment for the Gentiles. Read with me 23 through 29. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So they're saying, We've heard about you doing these amazing things elsewhere. Do it here as well. Show that you are who you are. And Jesus, knowing he's about to upset them, he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And he's about to show them two prophets that God's people rejected. And he's getting at the idea that they're going to reject him as well. He says, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. The them he's talking about were the Israelite widows. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, Elijah was rejected by God's people. His message from God was rejected by them. And so God sent him to a Gentile woman. And, and if you go read the story in, in 1 Kings 17, it's really incredible because he goes to this woman who, who, who she has a, a, a morsel of bread left. It's all she's got. And, and, and she's, she's going to make it for her and her son, and it's going to be their last meal. She knows they're about to die, and Elijah comes and shows up, and he's like, hey, can you feed me that bread? Ridiculous, Right? And she's like, that, this is my last loaf. Like, we're about to die. I don't know if you understand the situation. And Elijah's like, no, 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 trust me. Just, just feed me the bread. And God shows up for this widow in astounding ways. You'll have to go read it later because I don't have time to keep unpacking it. But 
But it's incredible because God's people have rejected his prophet and then, and then he sends the prophet to someone who has humble, confident faith that knows they need the Lord, that they need him to set them free, that they need him to preach good news in the midst of their poverty. Similarly, Elisha, who succeeds Elijah, Jesus says, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them, again, none of the Israelite lepers was cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian, again, a Gentile, receives God's blessing and favor because he demonstrates faith. Elisha tells him to go wash in this dirty river, and, and, and he, was, he was royalty where he came from. And yet he goes and does it. He goes and he, and he humbly, even though, even though he's got some questions, he goes and he dunks himself in this muddy river seven times, and all of a sudden God cleanses him from his disease, heals him. You see, Jesus just said that God's blessing, God's favor is coming to the Gentiles because you Jews have rejected it. And so all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were, they were filled with wrath because, honestly, they hated the Gentiles. They hated the peoples who didn't belong to God. You see, the thing about racism is it's broader than, than just skin. Historically and globally, like, like we think about racism just in terms of skin color, but historically and globally, racism has, has been seen in all sorts of ways, and oftentimes it had to do with worship, it had to do with the God that you served, or your, your lineage, the family that you came from. And so it didn't just have to do with your skin color. The Jews, they hated the Gentiles because they were idolaters, they were pagans. So they're filled with wrath when Jesus says these things. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. The idea was that they would throw a heretic or a blasphemer off the cliff. And then if they died on impact, it was good. But if they didn't die, then they would take stones from the top of the cliff and they would pelt them down on the person's body so that they died. Because they were a heretic, because they were a blasphemer. And so this is what the people want to do when they hear that God's blessing is not, is not going to come to them. Because honestly, they're mistaking saving faith. They're mistaking this ethnocentric pride, this, this honestly racism for saving faith. They think that because they're God's chosen people, that they just get an in. And it doesn't matter what life looks like. They had this ethnocentric pride that caused them to hate the Gentiles and to hate Jesus' message of blessing to the Gentiles. What they're forgetting is that God chose them so that they would be a light to the world, so that all the nations and families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. They're forgetting that God's redemptive plan has always been global, they're forgetting that this has always been what God was going to do. I love how Matt Chandler says this. He says, Israel, being a chosen nation, should have brought humility and compassion for the world, but instead it brought arrogance and disdain. You see, and here's what we have to ask ourselves. Because we, we tend to think that this was just their problem, that we don't have it. That's most of the time how we read the Bible, right? If we're just honest. We think, oh, I don't have that problem. But we do. Ask yourself, who is it that you're uncomfortable to be around? Who is it that you just really don't like that much? Who is it that you don't think really fits in? 
You see, because we love doing missions in, in Africa and in South America, but, but the second that a black or Hispanic person shows up in, in our church, we, we, we begin to think, have they gotten the right place? Did they mean to go somewhere else? You see, we love to talk about the separation of church and state and unity despite diversity, but the second someone isn't on board with a conservative Republican agenda, we start to treat them like they're not even a Christian or worse, not even a human being. You see, we love to read Revelation 7 about how all the nations, tongues, and tribes of the world will worship the Lord together for eternity, and we celebrate that forever. But when an immigrant who hasn't learned our language shows up. We rudely think or even say, learn English or go back where you came from. See, we want our churches to be diverse, but when pastors start to change how worship looks to reflect that, all of a sudden, we ask them who gave them the right to change our music or, or, and we threaten to withhold our tithes. You see, I, I heard a Hispanic pastor tell a story about this church in Phoenix where he got death threats because he started to include both Spanish and English lyrics in the worship songs on the slides. I met a pastor last week, who African-American pastor, who told us a story that one of his first churches, he was beginning to, to take this African-American church and make it multicultural, multi-ethnic bringing about racial diversity in a historically African-American congregation. And in a business meeting, a lady gets up and angrily says, Pastor, who gave you the right to make our all-black church multicultural and multi-ethnic? And he simply responded, Jesus did. And the people clapped and celebrated because he was exactly right. Jesus, in his ministry and his words, he challenged these things. He disrupted them. And it, it ought to disrupt some things for us. It ought to cause us to, to look at ourselves and say, man, God, are we doing what you want us to do? God, do we really believe Revelation 7? Do we really believe it's beautiful? that your gospel is for all the peoples of the earth, it's for all the nations, and that you want to reconcile us to yourself and to one another. Who are you okay with God blessing? Finally, we see that Jesus, he flees abuse and danger. In verse 30, it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. You see, do you remember Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd or, or Tom and Jerry? You know, how, how they were always fighting, right? And, and there were these really passionate fights, and, and, like, and, and poor Elmer and Tom, like, they just could never win, you know? They tried so hard, but Jerry all, always escaped Tom, and, and Bugs always escaped Elmer and just kind of left him grasping for things. You see, Jesus, he, he escapes this dangerous situation in, in what's probably a bit of a miraculous way because the whole crowd wants him dead and they're about to throw him off the cliff and he just gently and calmly walks out of it. You see, I, I want you to see something here that, that's really more of an aside, not, not the main drive of, of the passage, but I want you to see its implications because 
Even Jesus escaped danger and abuse when he could. You see, sometimes we, we begin to misunderstand some of the scriptures to think that we're just to endure sin, endure wrongdoing, endure abuse. And it's not what they teach. I mean, Jesus, Paul, and even David escaped danger whenever it's possible throughout the Bible. And then Jesus, he does this really unique thing that none of us can do. You see, he escapes abuse, he escapes danger, he flees from it, and gently resists it and responds to it until the day when he chooses to lay his life down willingly for us to endure abuse on our behalf, to, to do so, to do what only he could do on the cross. That's a unique work that you and I can't accomplish, to do what only he could do so that he could set the captives free so that he could set the oppressed free, so that he could preach good news to the poor, so that he could give sight to the blind. You see, friends, the, the question for us this morning is, are we going to turn to this Jesus who suffered for us to humbly, with faith, receive the salvation only he can provide, the freedom only he can provide, the justice only he can accomplish, the healing and compassion only he brings? Or are we going to, with hostility, reject him because we don't like some of the things he does and says, just like his hometown did? So that's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus this morning? And if you're not sure, man, we'd love to talk to you more after the service. Reach out to us anytime. But I hope today will be the day where you place your faith in him and you see that he sets the captives free. Let's pray. Jesus, we are profoundly grateful and humbled by who you are and what you've done for us, by the words that you have spoken to us. And... God, we are in desperate need of the salvation only you can provide. So God, would you help us to see clearly? Would you give us sight? As those who are spiritually blind, would you give us sight? As those who are held captive by sin and suffering, would you set us free this morning? Would you help us to look to you, trusting that you are the one anointed with the Spirit of God to bring about the salvation of God's people? Make us a part of your kingdom and your work. In Jesus' name, amen.